welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for tuning in. I want to say a special thanks to our producers, Jason Stark and Taylor Terzek. Uh, they put in so much work behind the scenes and we appreciate them. Um, and also to Alan Files, who puts in a lot of work behind the scenes, uh, especially when things go wrong with the website, but also maintenance of the website as well, as James Steinbach, who helps out there as well. So thanks to both of them. Uh, if you get the chance to share the word about OnScript, please do so on whatever platform you can do that. That really helps us. Uh, otherwise, enjoy the episode. And if you'd like to donate to OnScript, you can do so at onscript.study forward slash donate. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Our guest today is Professor Nathan McDonald, who is Professor of the Interpretation of the Old Testament at Cambridge University. He's the author of numerous books, including Deuteronomy and the Meaning of Monotheism, um, What Did the Ancient Israelites Eat? Diet in Biblical Times. He also wrote Not Bread Alone, Priestly Rule, Polemic and Biblical Interpretation in Ezekiel 44. And the book we're discussing today is called The Making of the Tabernacle and the Construction of Priestly Hegemony, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. So, Nathan, thanks so much for joining OnScript today. Matt, thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. So I should I should say a quick uh, personal intro as well. I had the privilege of working with Nathan at the University of Göttingen when he was uh, directing a a research a five year research project there uh, about monotheism in the post exilic period. So uh, Nathan, it's, it's always good to connect with you, and I always appreciate the time I had working with you for two years out of those five that you oversaw that project. So your your book focuses on the tabernacle construction account in Exodus 25 to 40, um, minus the bit in the middle about the uh, golden calf uh, episode, although you do touch on that, uh, as well as the, pre- the priestly ordination portions, one of which is in Exodus 29, and then there's another priestly ordination account of it actually happening in Leviticus 8 and 9. So I don't want to lose our, our listeners with all the, the references, um, but one thing I want to just ask about up front is that with regard to the tabernacle construction account, you argue that there are four versions of the tabernacle. Uh, first of all, what do you mean by that? And then we'll get into um, the significance of it. Thank you, Matt. Um, yeah, so the focus of the book is these tabernacle accounts in the book of Exodus. So they are portions of the Hebrew Bible that I think many readers find challenging, um, partly because they're descriptions of the construction of furniture um, and and also of priestly vestments. So it's, it's not for most readers the most exciting plot line. Um, and not only that, we get an account of these uh, this furniture, the instructions being given to Moses in Exodus 25 to 31. And then in Exodus 35 to 40, we get a description of these items being made. So it, for most readers, it's a highly repetitive account. Um, I, it, it's, it's often said that people's intentions of reading the Bible uh, die in Le- the book of Leviticus. And I, I don't think that does Exodus a f- fair justice because I think a lot of people have, <laughs> have, have, have really lost spirit by the time they've got through Exodus and they've, repeat, they've read this repeated material and they're thinking, oh, what is this about and, and who's this for? So that's the material I'm, I'm interested in. Um, so the tabernacle is this tent shrine, and we have it in four versions. And this is really quite unusual in terms of the Hebrew Bible um, more broadly, but especially for the Pentateuch. Um, and by these four versions, um, I mean the the different textual versions that that have come down to us from from late antiquity and the medieval period. But I I, I argue that these go back into the Second Temple period, um, and this these are an old Latin version. Um, an old Greek version, the Hebrew, the Masoretic text that that most of us are familiar with from our from our English Bibles, and the Samaritan Hebrew version, and these are all slightly different from one another. So uh, we don't just have one 
account of the tabernacle being commanded and constructed, we actually have four different versions. So we've got these uh, four different versions in the Old Latin, Old Greek, Samaritan Pentateuch, and the Masoretic text. So we don't have to get into all the the, the weeds in terms of what those are, but, but for listeners who aren't familiar, um, just to get people on the same page, what are those four versions uh, that you were analyzing and in, especially in terms of their differences with regard to the tabernacle? Yes. Yeah, so that- very briefly, let me describe what those terms mean. So so we have the Masoretic text, and that's the textual tradition that's passed through uh, the, the Jewish community and is known from medieval manuscripts especially. We have the Samaritan Hebrew, which is passed on in the Samaritan community. We have the Old Greek. That this is the, um, the original version or the reconstructed version of the the Greek has, um, very often we talk about this as the Septuagint. Um, and then we have the Old Latin. And, and Old Latin here means the the Latin versions, and it's not just one text, but sometimes a variety of texts, the Latin text that existed before Jerome's Vulgate. So those are our four different versions. Um, in terms of their differences to one another, we can kind of group them into two groups. So the the two Hebrew versions, the Masoretic text and the Samaritan version, are fairly close to one another. Um, the the main differences between them are that uh, there's a closer relationship in the Samaritan version between the commands that are given and their execution. One of the most uh, notable ways in which that happens is that the, if, if you read the Masoretic text, the, the version that we know from our English Bibles, we're sort of surprised by the place of the incense altar. Various pieces of tabernacle furniture are described about how they're to be made. And um, the the incense altar sort of comes right at the end as a sort of loose appendix. It doesn't appear in the place that it ought to appear um, in the commandments. And then when we turn to the actual construction of the tabernacle, it's sort of integrated. And what happens in the Samaritan Pentateuch is that the incense altar is sort of taken from this loose place as an appendix and, and is actually integrated into somewhere where it, the place where it really ought to be. So um, is it fixing a perceived problem? It's it's fixing a perceived problem. Yeah, that's right. And, and there are other small differences. I mean, one of them is that the, he, the Masoretic text doesn't tell us how the Urim and Thummim are made. These are these two uh, oracular devices that Aaron bears on his bears in his chest pocket and and brings out to give oracular decisions. There's no account of how they're made in the Masoretic text. That perhaps they were uh, the, the 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 author of the Masoretic text imagines that they were given to Moses. But the this problem is resolved in the uh, Samaritan Pentateuch because they're actually made. So there are these sort of mostly fairly small differences. Um, but largely, the the Masoretic text and the Samaritan Pentateuch are relatively close to one another, um, or at least they can be kind of paired together. And in both of these Hebrew versions, there's largely a fairly close relationship between the commandments that are given and their execution. When we turn to the Old Greek and the Old Latin, which we can again sort of pair together, the the order is different. And there's not quite such a close relationship between the commandment and the execution. Um, In particular, the order of construction is different than we find in the Hebrew versions. So in the Hebrew versions, the, um, the, the tent is constructed first, and then the furniture that's to go inside it, and that's, I suppose that's kind of logical, um, and then the uh, vestments for the priest are described last. Whereas what happens in the Greek and the Old Latin version is that the material is constructed according to its material. So the first of all, the, the fabrics are made, beginning with Aaron's vestments, and then and, and the tent, and then the furniture is made, which is um, either made from metal or is covered in metal. And that corresponds quite nicely to the two workmen who are involved in the in leading the construction of the tabernacle, uh, Bezalel and Ohaliab. Bezalel has responsibility for the metal items and, the, and, and, and Ohaliab has responsibility for the fabrics. So there's a different kind of ordering of material. Um, and there are also some sort of interesting uh, little details as well. One of them is that the, the incense altar that, as we've already seen with the Hebrew versions, is already a little bit of a problem, is not described as having been constructed in the Greek version. So there's, you know, there's something interesting going on there. 
Um, and the old Latin is fairly similar to the Greek, um, except some aspects of the interior are slightly different. Um, most interesting, I think, is that in the in the Holy of Holies, in the central part of the of this tent shrine, there are cherubim, and these are in in all the other versions they are cherubim. They sit on the Ark of the Covenant, but in the old Latin version, they're actually on pillars. It's it's very interesting, and then not only that, but in the in the room that's outside, where the the table is and the lampstand and the incense altar, in the Latin version, there are also seraphim. So there are cherubim in the inner room, and there are seraphim in the outer room, and that seems to be, uh, at least to my mind, it's it's a sort of it's it's a harmonization towards Isaiah. If you remember in 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 Isaiah's vision, he he. Isaiah goes into the temple and he sees the Lord uh, on his throne and the seraphim are there uttering the words, holy, holy, holy. So this seems to be a sort of bringing of these sort of two two accounts together. I mean, that so, so you're you're imagining there someone who is familiar with Isaiah? Yes. Yep. I think that's what we've, we've got here. And there's an element of harmonization of those yeah. accounts. Yeah. It's just interesting to think about a priestly writer reading... Isaiah, and it's not surprising given the the time period you're you're proposing this is written. So, um, so then w- with these different texts, so we've got uh, Old Latin, Old Greek, Samaritan Pentateuch, Masoretic text. Just to remind everyone, we've got these four different versions. Um, now you could, I could imagine someone thinking, well, Old Latin, Latin's a translation later than it's uh, the Greek, and that's later than the Hebrew, so it must be the latest version. So, but you don't argue that. So, what what do you suggest or propose in terms of what the earliest version of the tabernacle was like, and how do you and how could you argue that that's earliest if it's not a Hebrew version? Yeah, there are. I mean, there are some that think that the Old Latin is perhaps preserving the very earliest text. And I I I don't hold to that view. I do think that. There's evidence of it having been aligned with Isaiah. It looks a bit later typologically than the Greek. Um, and the the Old Latin is a daughter translation from the Greek. So it the 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 move that the translation has gone through is it was translated from from Hebrew into Greek and then into Latin. Unlike the Vulgate. Unlike the Vulgate, although we, the Vulgate in itself is a complex story and um yeah. Uh the, the the big question for really revolves around the the Greek and the Hebrew text and their differences in order and in particular actually the 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 somewhat messiness of the Greek account. The Greek account is not always smooth. Now one might feel that that could illustri- indicate poor transmission, um, but on a text critical basis, another possibility is that that suggests itself is that the the Hebrew text has been tidied up and smoothed out in order to um, in order to create again a better alignment between the commandments that are given to Moses and their actual execution. Um, and uh, you know, this is the the, the sort of the, in, in broad terms, this is the text critical principle of of the the easier reading or the smoother reading is very often the later one. And the reason for that is that the scribes notice problems. They notice errors and they smooth them out. Now, that in some ways introduces a, a kind of problem to us because, um, you know, how did this messy Greek text arrive in the first place? You know, why is that? Uh, why did we end up with a what I think is the Greek text reflecting an earlier, somewhat complex arrangement with with some, you know, not always smooth. And I think that comes from the development of the text. Um, so we're having, so, you know, part of my book is trying to explain how we get this sort of messiness in the Greek text, and then why we then sort of get this sort of smoothing out and um, harmonizing um, of the text. And I mean, this this issue was noticed already back in the 19th century, um, and, and in particular, the, the importance of the Samaritan version was realized at this point because the Samaritan version in many ways is doing what the Hebrew version does, but it's going a little bit further. It's trying to create an even clearer uh, and an even better alignment between commandment and execution. So, you know, if from the from the perspective of the Samaritan text, you know, even the Hebrew text has not yet sort of fully aligned these things, then there are still areas that they notice need smoothing out. Now, um, I want to talk about 
the the notion of a hegemony, uh, which is part of your title. So your title, just to remind people, is the making of the tabernacle and the construction of priestly hegemony. Um, why the emphasis on priestly hegemony as you trace these different versions? So I just want to uh, quote from page nine of your book. The purpose of this book then is to contribute to the understanding of how the conditions were created for the high priesthood to assume political supremacy at some point during the early Hellenistic period. So could you talk about that idea of priestly hegemony? Yeah. I mean, bef before I get to that point, I, I suppose I'd want to say, well, you know, if we've got these four different versions, one of the questions is, well, well, why is this? Um, and, and I, you know, at, at its simplest, it's you know, although we as modern readers may find this text sometimes rather forbidding and difficult, actually for ancient readers and scribes, this clearly was a text of great interest. And these four different versions reflect the fact that early readers and scribes feel the need to keep on revising it. Yeah, so so however we construct the relationship between these different versions, it shows the sort of the intensity of of interest in this tech. Um, that you know they're not just sort of building a, a structure, or they're not just imagining a structure being built, but but the text itself is being built and constructed and rearranged. And one of the reasons I think this is happening is because it's 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 almost a sandbox. The text is almost a sandbox for imagining what the community should be like um, and how cultic worship should occur, should occur, how God's presence is to be secured amongst the people of Israel, and most importantly, what the place of the priest and the high priest is and how that relates to the role of the people and how this all fits together. So uh, this sort of edit, this evidence that we see in these four different versions is evidence of this really animated concern in uh, in in this question and in sort of sorting out some of these issues. So, um, yeah, it just makes me think like you talked about, this was obviously a, a, a subject of great concern for uh, priestly writers. So what does that tell us about the, like the priestly aesthetic sensibility? Like what, what would you say um, if someone's asking like, you know, what is their sense of aesthetics as we see reflected in these texts, maybe here and also in liturgical texts in Leviticus. What so tell me more what you mean by, by aesthetics. Well just like the, that they appreciate and you know, let's let's argue they delight in this kind of literature, including the full description of the instructions to build and then the full descriptions of the actual building happening. Yeah, I mean I I mean clearly it shows a sort of a, a sort of joy in the orderliness um, of these um, of these things, but it's 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 often a quite complex orderliness. Um, there are there are some complexities that get introduced as to you know, who can actually go into the tent itself, into the um, into the outer room, and there seems to be a kind of shifting of perspective. Initially, it seems probably just the high priest can go in, but eventually it's extended to to other priests as well. So, uh, but there is a sort of uh, there is an orderliness. There's, there's also, um, I mean, clearly there's a great sense that uh, God should be surrounded by really quite opulent and beautiful surroundings. Um, there's a, there's a sort of, there's a clear gradation within the temple from gold to silver to bronze. Um, there's, there's also more finely worked articles. Within the center part of the temple, uh, in, in the central part of the tabernacle, and and this becomes less so as you go out. And similarly, the the, the high priest wears these um, amazing vestments, and the ordinary priests do not wear anything quite so quite so beautiful. So um, there is a sort of sense that I mean, the I mean the the, the tabernacle in many ways is a, a it's a palatial dwelling, um, and that's what the the name tabernacle you know, the 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 Hebrew term Mishkan, it's it's the dwelling place, and and this is a uh, this is simply a very beautiful place for God to be. You know, his he surround he's got he's got a lampstand in there which provides him with light. He's got a table which provides him with food. He's got incense so that his 
um, so that he he smells this this aroma from the incense, and he also has the he has the curtains and the and the uh, you know so he has beautiful surroundings for him that he can look at, but also his privacy is protected. So he's like a great king in in all these ways. Um, but also, this is a very I mean, what's most interesting about it is is the implication all the way through that uh, of a sort of God who who can sense these things, who can you know who who can appreciate. Good food can appreciate, uh, you know, a pleasant smell. Um, they can appreciate these these beautiful sort of wall hangings that are that are around him. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned the priestly garments. Uh, one of your more intriguing arguments in the book is the idea that within the sort of original priestly document that runs Genesis one through Exodus forty, um, we're talking about the priestly derived material within that section. Um, in which ends in you know God's presence filling the tabernacle. You, you argue that the true climax of that story is the account of the glorious garments of Aaron um, there in Exodus 28. So could you explain why you think that that's a climax or the climax of the story and in what ways these garments are, as you put it, suffused with meaning? Yeah, thank you. And and it is really a, a central feature of what I'm that I'm arguing, and I, I confess I didn't quite expect, didn't quite realize that I would get to that point. But I think I've ended up with a, a distinctive view on that original priestly document and the centrality of the priestly vestments. Um, part of it comes from a surprising feature of the tabernacle accounts. They that the priestly literature is famously laconic. It describes these various items. That make up the tabernacle without telling you what really what they're for. You know, there's no sort of symbolic significance attached to them. There's no explanation of why. I mean, I I think broadly speaking, they they create a, a pleasant environment for God. But the the priestly literature is famously quite uh, unwilling. You're quite reticent. Yeah, yeah, and we, and we could even extend that to um, the rituals in Leviticus where. They're, they're reticent in terms of explaining why you put your hand on the head of the animal as you bring it to the sanctuary or why you, you splash blood on the side. Is These things are left unexplained. And what's so surprising about the priestly vestments is that every single item in Aaron's wardrobe is given some instrumental significance. Every item does something. Um, in fact, I mean, that's so surprising that you will actually read some interpreters who describe the priestly vestments as being part of this sort of typical reticence of the priestly writing. And in fact, it's not. <laughs> They're um, an autopilot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the assumption is, is that the priestly literature is always very reticent. But in fact, the um, Aaron's vestments, when he goes in, are absolutely packed full of instrumental significance. And in, in fact, since I've written the book, I've become more convinced by that and the importance of this for the priestly literature. Uh, one of the most important ways I think this occurs. So, um, I mean, the, the priest, when he goes, the high priest, when he goes in, he's got bells to announce his presence to God. Um, he's wearing this um, crown, which reads sort of holy to the Lord. So um, God sort of look, and, and these all achieve certain things. But I think the most important piece of the vestments are what he's wearing on his chest. Um, and in particular, that he bears the names of the sons of Israel. Um what I had not realized um, is that, well, it, it's well known that the names of the sons of Israel are actually written twice on Aaron's vestments. They're written on two opals that are epaulets on Aaron's shoulders, six names on each. And then they're also written on, anybody who's seen an illustration of the, the high priestly vestments, that he wears this breast piece with 12 jewels in a four by three pattern on his chest. And those jewels each have the names of the sons of Israel inscribed upon them. What's fascinating is that these are not the same names. They The, the ones on the epaulets are said to be written in birth order. These are the names of the sons of Israel. That is, they're the names of the sons of Jacob. Right. And so this includes Levi and includes Joseph. Aha. But the names on the breast piece are the 12 tribes. Hmm. And this so is Ephraim Manasseh. This is Ephraim and Manasseh, and it's not Levi and it's not Joseph. Now, that in itself is a kind of intriguing clue that actually the, the there's been a development in these vestments. 
Um, and that that's very interesting because actually the pre, the breast piece is actually said to have a double significance, and that's kind of unusual. That's in itself is a kind of clue that that something is going on here. But the original, I mean, to my mind, the original one is the names of the sons of it, of sons of Jacob. Um, so um, Gad and Zebulun and Levi and Joseph and so on. And this is a really the the sons of Jacob is a really central part of. The priestly doc, the original priestly document, it's a really crucial part because um, one of the really important things that the priestly document is also doing is is combining these two origin stories. This is an idea from Conrad Schmidt in Zurich that the priestly writer is the first writer who combines the Genesis origin story, the idea that the the patriarchs are originated in the land of Israel, and the Exodus story that they originated outside the land. And these two stories have been combined together, and the bridge between them is seven or so verses at the beginning of the Exodus story. And you'll know, you know, you, you, Jacob goes down to into Egypt with seventy people, and then you know, you turn a page, and there's like two million of them. There's this sort of sudden explosive growth, and we move from kind of a pharaoh who really liked Joseph to a pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph and doesn't like the Israelites. So there's a real sort of you you sort of feel that sort of jump. Yeah, family and, to nation, and 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 that link is made within the first few verses in Exodus. The son, it's the sons of Jacob in in Exodus one verse one, and then bang, these the sons of Israel shifts its meaning to meaning this great group of people. So it's no longer these twelve sons of Jacob. Suddenly, it becomes these these this great great host of people that suddenly appeared in the meantime. So the sons of Israel is doing an awful lot of work within that original priestly literature. It's um, And the sons of Jacob are doing that. And, and so when Aaron goes into the tabernacle, he's reminding God of that history. And and this is a really important motif within the priestly literature because the priestly literature, if you remember the, the priestly uh, uh, flood story, um, the, the central motive within that story is that God remembers Noah. And then, of course, at the Exodus story, he remembers the sons of Israel. So this remembrance theme is he, he uh, is really important. And so that when Aaron goes into the tabernacle, he sees the names of the historical fathers of Israel, and 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 they're brought to his memory. So this is uh, I I've kind of become more convinced over time, and and even actually since writing the book, that this is absolutely central to uh, the the theology of the original priestly document and then it gets extended and and again the sons of Israel is doing a heck of a lot of work in being the sons of Jacob but also being the tribes of Israel and in fact it's not very often that we find the sons of Israel the Bene Israel in Hebrew being used of the tribes this is one of only a handful of places where where it happens mm, fascinating well uh, next book on the um, priestly garments a full-blown treatment and their reception um <laughs> Uh, so you you also argue that the Day of Atonement ritual in Leviticus 16 was incorporated into that priestly story. So we have this version where climax is the priestly garments, um, and then at some point, hopefully I didn't get the chronology wrong here. A Day of Atonement ritual in Leviticus 16 is is incorporated into that story. So what's the impact or significance of that move? And what happens to our conception of the priesthood when that when we reckon with that ritual? Yeah, thank you. Um, so the the Day of Atonement ritual has always struck scholars as being somewhat than usual. Not I mean, not quite fitting. Um, it has its own distinctive um, vocabulary and way of talking about things. We might kind of say its own idiolect. Um, it doesn't quite use the terms in the same way that we find them being used in the tabernacle account. So. It, it, it talks about it talks about the inner sanctuary as the holy place, whereas if you were to read the tabernacle account, it talks of this as the holy of holies. So there are just these, and the atonement language is also slightly different, uses slightly different prepositions, and also the uh, Leviticus sixteen has a different name for this tent shrine. It calls it the tent of meeting um, rather than the the tabernacle. Um, so the, the the emphasis is put in a slightly different place so that the tabernacle account, at least in what I think is its earliest version, uh, is describing this beautiful palatial environment where God can dwell. And this idea of God dwelling 
is absolutely central. Whereas what we find being emphasized in Leviticus 16 and in the Day of Atonement ritual is that meeting with God. And that's absolutely crucial because the Day of Atonement is reminds us that that's kind of not straightforward. One, you know, Aaron has to do various ritual actions in order to make that possible. Um, so in my view, what has happened is that this slightly different element in Leviticus 16 has, has been incorporated into the priestly document at a relatively early stage. And there have been various ways in which that that integration has had to be incorporated. Um, one of them is that I think the atonement cover that the Ark now has is a is a slightly later element. So this is a so the uh, on top of the Ark uh, there is placed a sort of very thin cover which is absolutely central to the atonement ritual on the Day of Atonement. This is where the uh, the blood is to be is to be splashed um, on the Day of Atonement um, and. This mention of the atonement cover is doesn't doesn't isn't found in all in the various other places where we meet the Ark of the Covenant. It's it's found in Leviticus sixteen, and it's found in it's now found in the tabernacle account as we now have it. Um, but I think it's been it's been brought in from Leviticus sixteen, and we don't find it. I mean, the Ark of the Covenant occurs occurs in various other places in the Book of Samuel and a few other places as well. But the the atonement cover is is a rather unique piece of furniture belonging to that. So I think in various ways, um, the tabernacle account has, well, it's been extended to include this reference to the atonement ritual. And in doing so, various uh, parts of the tabernacle have had to be reorientated and changed. Um, one of the ways in which that happens, I think also is that uh, the incense altar that is now found uh, just in front of the most holy place. Uh, I think that's a relatively late piece of furniture. We've we've already talked about it. This sort of appears almost as an appendix in Exodus 30. Um, and that's because it wasn't originally part of the uh, tabernacle. It's been added at a later stage. And I think it's been added because the Day of Atonement ritual requires Aaron to go into the most holy place with um, with an incense cloud covering the holy place. Um, and if we read Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16 just refers not to the incense altar, it just refers to the altar. There was at one stage only one altar. And that's kind of a problem because um, Aaron rather incongruously, if he's going to go into the most holy place, he's going to have to have this cloud of incense. And he's got to he's got to have coals that have come from the altar. But which altar is this? Well, before the incense altar, that has to be the altar of burnt offering that is outside. So we have this sort of rather incongruous thing that Aaron has to kind of go outside of the tent, collect these coals, put incense on them, and then sort of go all the way through into the Holy of Holies, process right the way through the tent, all the way through to the far end to go to the Holy of Holies. Um, and that's kind of a problem. And not only that, there's also something incongruous. Anything that has come from the altar outside is 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 made of bronze. It's it's not made from gold, and only gold things can go into the holy of holies. So there's something in Congress about that. How does Aaron take something from the outer altar all the way into the inner holy place? And the altar of incense sort of resolves some of these problems in some ways because there's a gold in uh, there's a gold altar, the incense altar, and it's right at hand. So when Aaron has to go in on the day of atonement, the incense altar is there. He can just pick up the coals, put them on. Uh, we can put the coals on his uh, set, uh, into his censer, and he can go straight into the most holy place. So there's been a there's been a rearranging of the right furniture of the of, of the sanctuary. <laughs> Yeah, I always think of the incense altar in there as like a uh, a welder's mask, you know, like because you're going into the intense glory, and so you need that uh, that the the cloud to surround the glory cloud that surrounds the glory. Um, so I just want to switch gears for a moment. We we often do a speed round in at OnScript, so um, so it's just I ask you questions and you just give an off the cuff answer. So what's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last fifty years? Numbers. <laughs> uh, how do you solve a problem like Maria? Oh, find somebody to marry her. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna. Uh, you know the Would You Rather game. So um, I'm gonna pose two scenarios, and you and you have to pick one. All right. So first scenario: 
Your grad seminar for the next academic year would feature only marionette show reenactments of biblical stories. Uh, and if people ask you why you do this or criticize you, all you're allowed to say is that people often misunderstand creative genius. All right, so that's scenario one. Uh, scenario two is a biographer will follow you around for two years, write a biography about you, and you need to unabashedly promote it every time you speak publicly and on social media for the year following. So which scenario would you choose? Uh, good for the puppets, I think. Pedagogy all the way. All right. <laughs> um, it's not when it takes you two minutes to explain the issue it's not really a quick fire round is it I don't know if you misunderstand <laughs> no, I, how this okay, works I get, I get carried away <laughs> I got carried away by the scenarios I started imagining this and, and it just became alive um, okay who are your academic heroes oh gosh oh that's hard um, Dalhausen can I go back to the 19th century <laughs> here go for it alright what's what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die Oh, this is not a this is not a hard one. The idea that there were different priests in different corners, always fighting with one another, and that these were connected to different families. Okay, all right, provocative. Uh, if you wrote a novel, what genre would you write in? Oh, genre? I don't know, dystopian fiction. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. What's your favorite movie? Whatever I last lost last watched with the kids. <laughs> okay, oh, <laughs> a good father. Um, we did right, Barbie. One... We we did Barbie. We didn't do Oppenheimer. I, I, does that tell okay. you anything? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One more uh, scenario. Okay. Uh, since you have two options here. Since Chariots of Fire was filmed in part at Cambridge, um, you need to play the theme song nonstop at, at a good volume in your office, including during student tutorials and in your classroom. It needs to be audible and, and uh, you know, quite loud for one year. And you need to just say that you think the song, you, you like the song and believe it, it's important for Cambridge's profile. Okay, so that's scenario one. Scenario two, you visit 20 of Cambridge's 100 libraries, ask for a special meeting with the head librarian, and discuss detailed plans, including diagrams and pictures, to set up a glass display case at the library entrance, which would feature only your books and personal effects. Which scenario do you choose? It, it, it would have to be the first one. The second one, I, I would struggle with the vanity of that project. <laughs> well, tell me it hasn't crossed your mind. It would, it would have to be a very modest cabinet as well. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're, you're into furniture. So, All right. All right. Back to the book. Um, you, one of the things you talk about in the book is that you talk about method. So you're using not only a comparison of manuscripts, so in traditionally text criticism, um, uh, but also, uh, you're you're looking at redaction history as well. So the putative kind of layers behind the earliest manuscripts we have access to, and and you say uh, at some point that literary critical models are good to think with. So why do you think so, and and how have you found that? Yeah, that language I actually originally encountered in relation to some of the work that I'd done on food, where you get writers on food wanting to justify the what they're doing talk about food being both good to eat and good to think with and that was just one of those little phrases that's stuck with me but i've i've always tried to try to come to terms with what do we do about something like redaction criticism because these are you know you have your redaction theories i have my redaction theories you know what, what do we do about that you know they're not um right or wrong in a straightforward sense. Um, and, and the way that I've come to think about it um, is to think of these as sort of models. You know, when somebody, uh, you know, if you get an astrophysicist, you know, creates a model of the universe, you know, this is, a, this is by nature a simplified model. And you don't talk about it being right or wrong. You, you talk about a model being better or worse. Um, and, and, and I think that's how I think about redaction critical Ideas that they are—they're models to try and explain the text that we now have, and you know there are better and worse models, and we can discuss it. But they—they they ultimately provide us with a way of thinking about the text, of thinking about why certain features have arisen, and um, what might have been the the authorial intentions behind that. Um, and so, in many ways, you know, the real advantage of redactional critical theories and models is that they they make us read the text closely 
and to think carefully about the text. And and ultimately, that's where they should take us back to. You know, when an astrophysicist makes a model of the universe and it fits in some ways and doesn't fit in other ways, he goes back and he looks at the universe and says, okay, well, why is it not working as well as I think it should? Um, and I think that's what redaction critical ma- models do as well. They 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 try to explain the text we have, but ultimately they draw attention to certain features that help us hopefully go back to the text and think about it with greater thoughtfulness and awareness and attention to its to its details and its problems. What do the priestly ordination rituals in Leviticus eight and nine and and also back in Exodus twenty nine show us about the kinds of transformations happening around the place and status of the priesthood? Yeah, thank you. So this is so two thirds of the book is really taken up with the the tabernacle account and its furniture and uh, and its structure. The last third of the book is taken up with these uh, ordination rituals um, that are a, a crucial part of the tabernacle account, but also sort of a distinct part of it as well. And I I've wanted to, uh, you know, what I've tried to argue for is that, is that that these ordination accounts are actually known in. Actually, in five different versions, that we that that what we have is five dif- five different ways in which this ordination ritual is, I suppose, generative. Um, so I think it, it's a sort of puzzle. If you read the uh, original description of what is to be done in Exodus twenty nine, you have a fairly complex ritual being described that has um, various offerings. Um, it has a purification offering. Um, it has a burnt offering. It has a um, fellowship offering. But but all of these rituals really could be done in an afternoon. They're not massively complex. Um, and and then right at the end of the ritual, we're told that this has to be done for seven days. Um, and it sits rather uncomfortably. It's a sort of puzzle in the text. Um, and I think what's happened is that this what is what was originally simply an ordination ritual has been turned into a seven-day consecration ritual, a consecration ritual for the sanctuary. Now, this is an idea that we find also in Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43 describes a consecration of Ezekiel's temple, and it takes seven days. And so I think what we see in um, Exodus and Leviticus is a complex ritual that both consecrates the priest and also consecrates the tabernacle. It makes it holy. Um, but because there's been this alteration to the ritual, you then get in Leviticus 9 a what we might call an inauguration ritual, which is that on the eighth day, so we have this seven-day ritual which ordains the priest and consecrates the tabernacle. And then we need another ritual in Leviticus 9 which inaugurates it and gets it all going. And what's really odd about that ritual is if you read Leviticus 9, it tells you that this is what God had commanded. And you kind of read it and you kind of think, but where? Um, And it's essentially another reiteration in a slightly different way of the rituals we've already had. So in some sense, it has been commanded, but it's not um, obvious that it has been, you know, it's not straightforwardly being commanded. This is a kind of interpretation of, of the earlier material and a, another iteration. Um, and this explains this sort of, in this case, this sort of three different versions. So we have an original priestly ordination, a consecration of the sanctuary that's been combined with it, and then an inauguration service on the eighth day. This sort of threefold repetition creates all sorts of chronological problems. And this explains some of the great difficulties that we have in the chronology of the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Um, and I'm really kind of indebted actually to Gary Anderson, who um, sort of pointed me in the direction of this and discusses it in his own work. But um, it, he moves it off in a particular direction. But this created all sorts of problems um, for early Jewish interpreters, particularly in rabbinic literature, um, because when does the tabernacle service begin properly? Well, we would expect it to have occurred on the first day of the first month of the second year. This is the beginning of time. This is the, the moment of the new year. and But that means then that the, the previous seven days, Moses has to have, um, he has to have ordained the priest over the seven-day period. But how does that happen? Well, 
the tabernacle service doesn't begin properly until the first day of the first month. The, the only way the rabbis can resolve this is through what is clearly a problematic harmonization, is that they imagine that Moses erected the tabernacle and took it down on every uh, every day for seven days because they, they were encountering all sorts of chronological problems and the chronological problems continue as we get into numbers seven and eight and nine. And the, the way that way that we can make sense of that, I think, is that originally this one-day ritual, this ritual that could have been in, done in an afternoon, has become a seven-day ritual and this uh, re- reverberates with all sorts of problems. But what I've wanted to argue in the book is that actually this can go further, that when we see the dedication of the Levites in Numbers 8, this is in itself a sort of variant of that ordination ritual. And then finally, the um, blood ritual in Exodus 24 where the people are sprinkled with blood is another variant of this again, where the people are made into a uh, into a into a royal priesthood, and so we actually have five reiterations of the same ritual. Now, I I, I mean, I think to me that raises all sorts of really fascinating questions um, about uh, about how ritual texts are working, um, but also it raises some really problematic and challenging issues about just how much do we know about the ritual life of ancient Israel. We might imagine when we read the Pentateuch, we've got this huge repository of ritual texts that provide us this massive insight into all the different kind of rituals that were going on. And I want to say, well, actually, here we've got five rituals, but they're actually essentially one ritual originally. They've just been retold in in various different ways. So um, there are various sort of challenging implications, I think, of that thesis. And yeah, it's one of those things where I think I'll be very interested to see what what, what others, other scholars make of it and, and what the potential ramifications of it are. So I, I can't let pass. Uh, I, I know we're running short on time here. The, the incident in Leviticus 10, then after this ordination ritual in, in Leviticus 8 and 9, of the, uh, the strange fire offered by uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and then they're, they're zap fried by the fire that comes out from the tabernacle. Um, what's the significance of that account in your uh, rendering of the, the uh, development of um, the priesthood? It's oh, it's a really vivid story, isn't it? Um, and it's essentially trying, in, in my view, to resolve some quite complex problems that have resulted from the development of the tech. When we get to this inaugural inauguration ritual on the eighth day, one of the things that that inauguration ritual is trying to do is to highlight a number of textual tensions between the ordination ritual, the original ordination ritual, and the sacrificial legislation in Leviticus 1 to 7. So when this when the ordination ritual is originally given by Exodus by Moses to Moses in Exodus 29, the sacrificial legislation has not been given. But when it is actually enacted in Leviticus 8, the sacrificial legislation has given, been given in Leviticus 1 to 7, and there are several tensions that then exist between the ritual that is done and that sacrificial legislation. And one of those is actually about whether you can have a purification offering for the high priest alone or the high priest and his family. So in Exodus 29, the purification offering is done for Aaron and his son. But in Leviticus 1 to 7, in the sacrificial legislation, purification offering, there is a separate purification for the high priest, and then there's a purification offering for everyone else. So again, these these different parts of this legislation don't really key up together. And one of the interesting things that Leviticus 9 is doing is sort of flagging that up to us. Um, and is just highlighting this problem. And what goes on in Leviticus 10 is is sort of playing on this issue and trying to explore some of the ramifications of it. Now, one of the one of the neuralgic issues is who gets to do what? Do the priests get to do the same functions as their father, as the high priest? Or are there certain things that only the high priest can do? And so when we get to Leviticus 9... And as you recall, I said, you know, this wasn't exactly commanded anywhere, but it is another retelling of the ordination ritual. What happens is as we go through Leviticus 9, we go through the ordination ritual, the same sacrifices are given. And then if you read Exodus 29, what happens next? After all these things are done, the next thing that is mentioned is 
the incense altar and the incense that is to be offered. And so I think what you, you, you are meant to follow that script. And so Nadab and Abihu, you get, you know, God's glory is revealed as it is um, promised in the end of Exodus 29. And Nadab and Abihu kind of say, well, what's next? Well, what's next? Well, it's, it's the incense altar. So they say, right, let's go on and do it. But there is some discrepancy in different parts about kind of who can offer incense. Is it anybody in Aaron's family or is it just the high priest? And there's a tension in different parts. But Exodus 10 is, uh, sorry, Exodus 30 is really, really clear. It is only the high priest. And so Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, get the script right. They know that the next thing to happen is an incense offering. But they're not attentive to the fact that Exodus 30 is very clear when it says that the high priestly family is able to offer it. That means just the high priest, whoever is the high priest at the time, and it's not his sons. So it's a very, it's a very complex act of textual interpretation that we're encountering. And it continues into Leviticus 10, and it's a, all the way into Leviticus 10, there's a very macabre play on um the leftover offerings, because some of the difference between these sacrifices, between these purification offerings is what do you do with the leftover offerings? And there's a very macabre play on leftover offerings, leftover sons. What's going to happen to these two sons of Aaron that haven't been burnt by fire? Um, and and again, the, the writer is just trying to sort of focus our attention on the fact that this legislation as it's given in Exodus 29 just doesn't quite work with the sacrificial legislation in Leviticus 1 to 7. And then the story ends with Moses confronting Aaron and saying, well, why did you do this? And Aaron's response in some ways, I think, is, guys, well, what am I meant to do? There are two different commandments here. Which one do I follow? And that, I, I mean, this is impossible. Um, and, and Moses eventually kind of just says, OK, well, OK, I, I hear you on that. Uh, Moses is sort of satisfied and says, at the end of the day, you've just got to let the priest judge. So when it comes to ritual matters, yes, the high priest is, you know, a, there's a distinction between the high priest and the priest. But ultimately, when it comes to judging between ritual matters, the high, you know, the priest's decision, and the high priest's decision has to be the one that's followed. So Moses sort of hands over the interpretation. You know, some people have seen this as Moses handing over the interpretation of Torah. You know, Torah comes to Moses, but then Moses hands over its interpretation to the priests. And I, I think there's probably something to that idea. Well, there's so much more we could get into, including um, the role of gender in these accounts, the conception of divine presence, more on Bezalel and um, Oliab, uh, so much more that you discussed in this book, but we're out of time. So Nathan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about uh, your, your fascinating book, The Making of the Tabernacle and the Construction of Priestly Hegemony. Thank you so much, Matt. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.